His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We will be in Philippians 2 tonight, continuing our review of what we've spent the last two years looking at. Philippians chapter 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's faithfulness once again to open the eyes of our understanding, to feed us from His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this evening thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for all the blessings you pour forth day by day, moment by moment, blessings uh, we don't even expect or anticipate, and yet you, uh, you're a loving Father and you love to surprise your children and bless us in so many ways beyond all we could ask or think. So we thank you for the uh, abundant blessings that are ours in Christ and for the privilege we have tonight to, uh, to open the Word of God, to study and to grow. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We'll take a few minutes for questions. The microphone is ready to go. So uh, who would like to have our leadoff question for the evening? Uh-oh, she's getting one ready. All right, go to, that, go to Doug for our first question, and we'll come up here. Pastor Bob, if uh, <clears throat> there was a... Uh, did God condone polygamy in the Old Testament? Yes, God did condone polygamy, and he even commanded polygamy uh, in the sense of leveret marriage. If uh, If a brother died and he didn't have children, then his younger brother was expected to take the widow uh, and to raise a child with that widow uh, in the name of the deceased brother. And so the procedure of leveret marriage uh, would have demanded polygamy in the, in the sense of a younger brother who already had a wife or who would get a wife of his own at some point uh, because raising the, the child in your brother's name does not you know, change anything in your circumstances. You still want to raise a child in your own name uh, related to your own family inheritance. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. All right, let's come up front. Okay, this goes back to what you taught on Hebrews 10 2 Sunday. Uh-huh. And you were talking about the um, Old, to- Old, Old Testament covering of sins, the atonement, and the festivals uh, leaves a Jew with ongoing conscious awareness of those sins. <clears throat> you were t- You called it pre-Calvary salvation. Mm-hmm. So that would be appropriate only if they were believing Jews. And so, but for all the rest of the Jews, because it doesn't say that they were believing Jews in the, his, in the Hebrew. I don't know why you went there. Is what that, That's my problem. Is okay. Why did you call it pre-Calvary salvation when they weren't saved in any sense necessarily? It's It's... Well, that's true. Yeah, many of them were not necessarily saved, in a sense, but even those who were, even those who were still functioning under law and functioning under a, a priestly service whereby the the only approach to God, so let's take uh, you know David or Daniel or any, any believer from the Old Testament, how close are they going to get to God? Right. Well, because it's only the high priest that's going in within the veil, it's only, he's only doing that one day a year. And then, and then when he finishes that atonement and he comes back out, 
then, and he's done everything right. So he lives to do it again next year, right? Because if he does it wrong, he gets struck down dead. But uh, So he does everything right. He comes back out of the Holy Holies and, and everything's been ideal. The Day of Atonement is complete. They are, the nation is atoned for. But they still have a consciousness of sins. And we'll see next week because in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. And so it's built into the, to the Levitical system, built into their calendar, is every single year they're going to get a reminder of the, the nation and their sinfulness. So this is a national salvation. Because I'm really, mm-hmm. I, that's what I got all, I just got all bunged up because it, they aren't, there was no, it, was, they, it didn't say they were believing Jews. And so I got, that's where I got all twisted up because there wasn't a salvation. Right. But anyway. But, but still on a personal level though, though, even on a personal level, that's why we went to David in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. For those who are believers. And David is a believer. And he is regenerate, but he's still, his sin is ever before him. And he, he knows that his sin is covered. He knows that he's not going to be accountable for those sins, but it still is, is ever before him. And, and dreaming about the day that it would be taken as far as the east is from the west, that's something that all he can do is just dream about it in the Old Testament sense because the Levitical priesthood will never make that happen. Without ever knowing it ever will happen. Right. Exactly. Okay, well, thank you. Uh-huh. There's a similar expression, too, if I can find it. Um, I think it's in Numbers. And whoever, who, who reads the book of Numbers, right? Um, we all should be reading the book of Numbers. Moses, uh, so the young men are coming to Moses and they're saying that they have a problem because there's some people prophesying in the camp and, it's, and they're not, it's not Moses, right? It's other prophets beyond Moses. And he says, would that all of God's children had the Holy Spirit? And he just throws it out there as a, as a pipe dream. Like, a, wow, wouldn't that be awesome if all of God's children had the Holy Spirit? And of course, we read that today in our Bibles and say, well, yes, Moses, we do. <laughs> Every believer has the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a marvelous way. And so what we have in the church and what we call normal in the church, Old Testament believers just drooled over the idea that, wow, you know, you mean every believer could have the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? So, yeah, that's a that's, uh, I'm not sure I'll find it here real quick, but I think it's in Numbers. Would that all of God's children would have the Holy Spirit? Numbers eleven twenty nine. 29. See, I knew it was in the book of Numbers. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And actually, this is what gets prophesied for the new covenant that Israel as a nation will have the, the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that they would be in the prophetic office. Their young men will dream dreams, their old men will see visions. And so this expression by Moses here will have a fulfillment for Israel in their millennial kingdom. And that's part of what God promises in the, uh, in the new covenant uh, promise of Jeremiah 31. So, all right, good question on that. Other questions tonight? I got some by email, but I think I'm going to hold off. Uh, let's go to the back row then. Wes has a question. Also, last week, Randy had a question on text criticism. And um, I don't have notes on that yet, but I do want to get a, a list together, a bibliography of uh, text-critical books. Yes, sir? Um, I was wondering if you ex- it could explain Matthew ten thirteen, where it talks about your greeting of peace returning to you if the house isn't worthy. 
Yeah, and when he's sending out the disciples two by two, this is the chapter where the 12 disciples are named. And by the way, I believe Judas Iscariot was paired up with Simon the Zealot, so there's a tandem for you. Um, one who was a political terrorist and one that was not even saved and <laughs> demon-possessed. Um, yeah, so uh, sending a greeting, giving a greeting, uh, and if it's not returned, uh, that's, uh, I think, the a recognition that uh, our service has to be voluntary, it has to be volitional. Uh, if if this person is not going to welcome you, if it's not going to be a volitional hospitality, then you don't want to be there anyway. And so, uh, you know, you can you can extend your greeting if it's not returned. Uh, so, when, yeah, when it says give it your blessing of peace, that was a phrase we looked at when we were talking about greetings and, uh, and at that point. So if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace and move on. Take uh, Shake the dust off your feet and move on. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. All right, anything else tonight? Like I say, there was an email question, but I'm going to hold off on that. And then also uh, Randy was asking about text criticism. The um, uh, Some of my favorite authors and, and resources on that. Uh, I'm going to take an extra week to put that list together. Uh, there was also a question on, um, we were t- discussing the big numbers in the book of Numbers, the population census of the Exodus, things like that. That was a couple of weeks ago. I did get in touch with Titus Kennedy. The book that was supposed to come out in January is still coming. It's on the way, but it's going to be out sometime in July. So I don't know what the delay was on that, but it is still in process and uh, we should have it. Um, I, I'm eager to get it in my hot, my hot little hands, but as soon as it comes off the presses, uh, I will have that, and uh, and it's it is it's, it's really it's a marvelous look at the the LF expression as a chief, not as a thousand, and it really revises the numbers down. So it wasn't three million Israelites that came out of Egypt; it was about seventy five thousand, ninety thousand tops, um, and and that estimate's a little bit flexible too, depending on how many uh, how many females the, the female to male ratio was it two to one, three to one? How do we track that? And uh, so different estimates there. But the fighting age men was not 600,000 men. It was more like 6,000 men that, uh, that they that could field. And even of those 6,000, it was really only 600 that were armed and armored and professionally trained. Uh, the bulk of the other 5,600 or so were basically militia recruits, um, able-bodied men, but not not professional soldiers by any stretch. So uh, that's uh, a much better population figure for the Exodus and uh, and things there. So we talked about that a couple weeks ago, and I mentioned I was going to contact Titus at that time. So I wanted to report back on that. All right. Well, then, let's uh, go to Philippians 2. Thank you for running the microphone. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we have... Three exhortations and some travel arrangements. The first exhortation we handled on Sunday was uh, the short one there in verses 1 and 2, the exhortation to make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. And uh, we dealt with that on Sunday. Tonight I want to move on to the second exhortation. Remember, this is just the rapid review. We're not going into a lot of depth on all this. If you want the in-depth version on this, uh, go get it off the website because they're just sitting there. Have this attitude. Have this attitude. And so this is verses 3 through 11. And uh, we'll, we'll read through and uh, try to tackle. If we can cover all of it tonight, then 
we'll move on to the next exhortation on Sunday, which is work out your salvation with fear and trembling, verses 12 through 18. And that's one that gets abused a lot, so we want to make sure we're solid on that before we leave, uh, before we leave the book. And then there's travel arrangements we'll talk about in verses 19 through 30. Uh, Timothy was the only one ready to uh, go forth to a solo ministry and to, to shepherd a flock. The other men uh, were still selfish. They were still seeking their own interests. They had not yet matured to the point where they would be seeking the interests of, uh, of Christ Jesus. All right, so have this attitude. Have this attitude. So we can look at it starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so that kind of sets the table for everything else in this paragraph. Jesus did not come to this world thinking about himself. And he didn't go to the cross thinking about himself. If he was thinking about himself, he wouldn't have been on that cross. Uh, He was on the cross because you and I needed him to be on that cross. That he was uh, representing us, taking our place, accepting the wrath of God in our place. And uh, so that's what we have illustrated here. Uh, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And now it starts to expand upon really the the glory of, of our Savior's humility, the fact that he emptied himself, the fact that he was not about self-promotion. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And there is such a progression in this. Each step of the way became another test of humility. Is he going to go one more step? Is he going to go one more step? Is he going to go one more step? I mean, just coming to the earth is a step. Putting on a human body is a step. Uh, being willing to die is a step. Dying in the, the most horrific way possible, even death on a cross. That's another step. And at some point, you know, we all, we all get tested this way. Where we're we're going to obey, we're going to obey, we're going to obey. But then we reach our limit and we say, that's it, Lord. (laughs) Like we draw a line in the sand and say, haven't I obeyed enough? You expect him to make one more step? And uh, and yes, if if that's what he calls you to, if if that's where he's taking you, then yes, he expects you to take one more step. And so each step of the way, this uh, this verse just kind of brings you forward moment by moment, step by step, describing this, uh, even death on a cross. And so for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Maximum humility led to maximum exaltation. And that's, that's, that's almost the story of the whole Bible right there. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you at the proper time. But everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, everyone who humbles himself will be, exalt, will be exalted. And the reason why our Savior is the eternal celebrity forever is because he was the most humble, uh, the ultimate uh, example of humility in his service to God the Father. Really quite an opposite for Satan, right? Satan was all about self-promotion. Satan was all about I will, I will, you know, the five I wills. Everything there was about self-promotion. Satan couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't carry humility in a bucket. He didn't know anything about humility when it comes to uh, these things. 
And so it's for this reason that God highly exalted him. So that, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That three-dimensional view there of everything. In heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is uh, really just a ton of uh, blessings and material that's available there. I don't remember how many classes we taught to uh, to go through this. I'm just going to pull this up ahead of time. Remember, you can do this also. Just go to the church website, click on Philippians, um, come over here and decide if you're going to drill down to chapter 2. You can drill down to chapter 2. If you want to drill down to verses 3 through 11, you can drill down to verses 3 through 11. And now you've got a listing of, of all the verses right there. Class 81 through 93. So those are the classes you want to listen to that will center on what we're talking about here tonight, the uh, kenosis passage here of of, uh, our Savior. All right, so have this attitude. This is the climax imperative following the two present participles that is regarding and looking out for. We've got to deal a little bit of grammar that happens here, but in verse 3 and in verse 4 we have participles. And then it's in verse 5 we have the imperative. And some of that doesn't always translate well, and something sometimes it's not always as obvious in uh, in English. When we're uh, when we're looking at it, it kind of seems like he's barking a lot of orders, right? Uh, like he says, uh, you know, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Well, isn't that an order? Isn't that a command? Seems like it. And in English, it kind of comes across that way. But actually, regarding is uh, is a participle. It's a present participle, and so it's kind of setting the table. Same thing with looking out for in verse 4. Not uh, looking out for your own personal interests, but also looking out for the interests of others. That's not a command either. It's just a participle that's leading the way for the main command, the main imperative that we reach here in uh, in verse 5. And so uh, having this, I think, is useful as well, similar to the Great Commission. You've got to identify your participles, identify your imperative, and obey the imperative. All right, when when we uh, study it on that basis. So, regarding one another, this now is a uh, climax participle that follows two negative thought processes. It's like Paul's building his argument step by step and almost in a, in a, in a backwards fashion. So before we can get to the have this attitude, we've got these other two things that lead up to that. And before we can get to the regarding one another, there's two other things that lead up to that. That is, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And uh, thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So it's kind of a, it's a stair-step process. And, and I know I'm going through it real quickly tonight, but that stair-step process kind of spells it out. So, um, and we, we can do the same thing in English if we want to be wordy about it and kind of delay till we finally get to make the point. So, um, you know, uh, we might say, uh, you know, on your way home, you know, since you're driving by Dairy Queen anyway, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, you can kind of lay some conditions, you know, as you're kind of leading up to the fact that you, you want, you know, you want to pick up a blizzard, you know, on, on your way home. But you kind of lead into it with some other expressions along the way. So since you're driving 
right past Dairy Queen on your way home uh, and you know you just kind of give some conditions leading up. And that's what we have here. These are conditions leading up. The main imperative is have this attitude, think this way, which was also in Christ Jesus. All this other detail is, is feeding that. So uh, thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Thinking nothing from em- uh, selfishness or empty conceit. And so we did a word study on selfishness, did a word study on deceit, conceit. It's like a, a um, kenos for a void, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And it, it takes that term, it's like a void glory, a void glory, empty conceit. But with humility of mind, tapenafrasune for humility, regarding one another as superior. Regarding one another as superior. All right. And, and usually, uh, a lot of times the participles can be rendered with ing, can be rendered with ing verbs, right? So, illustrating the point cleverly, teaching uh, the, the doctrine, uh, whatever, uh, and then, you know, rambling on for a few extra minutes, the pastor finally got to the main issue that he was talking about. And uh, this is Paul's technique. Kind of a nice one, I like it. All right. So regarding one another as superior, and and really this is more than just a a, a delay tactic. There's actually, it's a significant point because at any step along this way, Falling off the rails here means you'll never get to verse 5. If you can't regard one another as superior, just hang it up there. You will not have this attitude in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. You know, if you are, um, if you are functioning from selfishness or empty conceit, then it's, it's game over at that point. All these other preconditions lead up to it, and if you're not uh, arriving at the standard of these things, forget about obeying verse 5. It's just not going to happen. Hegeamai is a verb for consideration, for regard, for esteem. Superior, hyper-echo, surpassing. Comes up several times in Philippians. 2, 3, 3, 8, 4, 7. You know, uh, more important than yourself. In 3, 8 it talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In 4, 7 it talks about the peace of Christ which surpasses all comprehension. So this, this idea of superiority is the idea that it's above and beyond. It is beyond anything that uh, you can imagine. And that's how we're supposed to consider one another. That uh, I'm not the most important person in the room. In fact, I'm the least important person in the room. Everybody else here is more important than me. And that's the attitude going forward. The other is more important. It's, uh, it it uh, helps to promote unity in a local church. It's a great marriage advice. <laughs> you know, Regard one another as more important. Show honor to one another in love. There's uh, blessings there. Thinking not for your own personal interests, but thinking of the interests of others. Again, that's preliminary. It's foundational. It's, it's a prerequisite. Thinking not for your own personal interests, but thinking of the interests of others. If, if, if you're just wrapped around self, then you're not Christ-like. You're Satan-like. If you're just promoting what, 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 uh, you know, your own glory, that's, that's imitation of Satan. That's not imitation of Christ. Concerned about the interests of others? Now you're talking. Now you're Christ-like. Now you're ready to uh, lay down your life for the sheep.
<laughs> the verb there for scoping out their interests is skapeo. Had some fun with that. Not your own interest, but the interest of others. The heteron, the others. And then think this thing in yourself. All right, the, the main imperative for have this attitude means think this thing in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is how he thunk, this is how we need to think. Right? This is how, this was, this was it. If he wasn't thinking this way, <laughs> you think he would have been born of a virgin and, and lived that humble life and, and, and suffered everything that he suffered on this earth? Of course not. If he'd have been thinking with Satan's kind of thinking, this never would have happened. But he was thinking in the humble thinking that we're commanded to think. So think this thing in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's the example for us to follow. The example for us to follow. And that is so vital. That's why, you know, we're following Jesus and this other crowd is following Muhammad. And it's, uh, it's as far as the east is from the west. That what, what a different pattern to follow. But John 13, 15, he said, I gave you a pattern to follow. And the pattern is humility. You don't have to wash feet, but that's the pattern. He says, I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. So if I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. What is it you won't do for the body of Christ? And why do you draw the line there? Why is it that you say, uh, you know, uh, I'll obey you up to a point, but uh, don't get carried away? 1 Peter 2.21 I know, and we hear this a lot too. Like, oh, well, you're just a fanatic. Why, why are you in church so much? What kind of a fanatic are you? You know, and you know, you can be you can be a good person and and not go to church as much as you do. What are you really doing? You think you're better than me? All right, First Peter two and verse twenty one. You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. So as we're imitators of Christ, realize the main area there is the suffering that we go through in this, uh, in this Christian walk. We're told to take up our cross and follow Him. So uh, while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. So we follow that example. We take up our cross and we obey in every step of the way the, uh, the race that's set before us. And and, uh, you know, God will work it out. He's the judge. And uh, I don't have to like it, but I, I do have to submit to the will of God and, and everything that He wants for me to do. He's the example for us to follow. He's the standard to which we strive. Ephesians 4.13 and Matthew 11.28-30. Jesus is the standard. If we're going to walk in a manner worthy well, how worthy is that? Well, how about Jesus? Is that a good enough standard for you? Ephesians 4.13. We go to church, we grow, we have pastors, and these gifts are designed for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man. Well, how mature is that? to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's the standard. He is the standard to which we strive. And since, uh, you know, I'm certainly more Christ-like than I was 20 years ago, but I'm, I'm not Christ-like 100%, obviously, I'm still here. 
there's, there's more to grow. And uh, if, if, if we reach that point that we had reached to our maximum uh, growth, our maximum uh, uh, Christ-likeness in this life, well, then this life would be over and He would take us home. Uh, but as long as we're still here, there's more Christ-likeness we have yet to attain to. That's the standard. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30. So do you think you're 40%, 30%, 80%? Almost there, Lord. You know, that uh, rich young ruler thought he was there. Man, I'd made it. I've earned my way here. What am I missing? He says, I've done it all. You know, why am I not in the kingdom yet? And Jesus says, oh, you're so right. You're just missing one little thing. You know, wasn't true, but I think Jesus was just, yeah, he was uh, teaching him effectively. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, turn, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke, my burden. That's the, exam, that's the standard to which we strive. All right, then the kenosis hymn. We studied this under point five, verses six through 11. Kenosis means empty. The verb kanao means to empty. And this is what Jesus did. He emptied himself. So we can translate the word and we're still asking, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to empty himself? Well, uh, I believe it means he laid aside his privileges, that he did not exercise deity. He couldn't stop being deity, but he stopped exercising deity. And so in the emptying of himself, he limited, voluntarily and sovereignly limited his, uh, his activity to the human experience. So if, if humans can't do it, he didn't do it. He didn't stop being omniscient, but he stopped using omniscience. He stopped accessing omniscience. He somehow, sovereignless, kind of a mystery too, how did he do this? How do you not know what you know? If you know everything, how do you stop knowing everything? Well, you stop you don't access that in the forefront of your thinking and you sovereignly, I mean, God can do anything, right? So he chose to limit what he knew based upon what he learned from birth on up. In other words, he was born of a virgin and his humanity knew only what a newborn baby would know, which is, you know, I'm wet, I'm tired, I'm hungry. Uh, you know, what does a newborn baby know? What does Jesus know as a child? At what age was he when he learned that he was God? <laughs> and how did he handle that? And all these other things. See, because if he uses omniscience, I would love to do that, wouldn't you? You're going through a test right now, and wouldn't it be great just to kind of sneak a peek into omniscience and figure out how to solve this thing? And then, uh, right? Or maybe, you know, just, you know, sneak a little peek into omnipotence and just, you know, fix the car. Just say it, you know, say it as so. Or, I mean, we can't do that. So Jesus didn't. Never once used omniscience, never once used omnipotence, never once used omnipresence. He walked everywhere he went. All right. That's what kenosis really centers on. Clearly it's a hymn, and I think uh, it's structured that way in a musical uh, kind of way. And Either Paul wrote it or Paul adapted it. Since we're supposed to speak to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, it makes sense that uh, many of the songs that were instructive for the early church uh, were incorporated into the text of our New Testament. 
And I think that's what we have here. That we have a um, that we have a uh, a hymn that has been written. And it is. It's a hymn of praise. This attitude of, of Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. It's a marvelous hymn. So believers would do this. We would speak to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. In fact, that's one of the earliest testimonies that was ever given by one unbeliever to another unbeliever. You know, we get to eavesdrop on two unbelievers talking about Christians. When uh, Pliny the Younger wrote a letter to Trajan and uh, explaining, you know, the Romans were trying to figure out what's, what's up with this new group. You know, they seem, they're kind of Jewish, but they're not, and the Jews don't seem to like them, and, and what is this all about? And uh, so they would write letters and try to figure stuff out, and this is what Pliny said and, um, in his epistle. Um, Christians were in the habit of singing hymns to Christ as to a God. That, uh, you know, you think about the different topics, things you could sing about, most of the early hymns were just singing to Jesus, thanking Him for being as awesome as He is, and identifying Him as our God and Savior. I think that's kind of a neat testimony. Many of the early hymns opened up with He Who. He Who. And that's kind of awkward for us. For us, uh, He Who isn't really the way we would start a song. It's not really a way we would start, you know, but they did. They did a lot of He Who songs like in Colossians 1 and 1 Timothy 3. There's also some apocryphal examples that aren't really fun to read but they are other examples of, of he who language that begins the different songs, the different hymns. Colossians 1 is an example of a he who opening to a song. We'll be here in a couple of weeks when we get to introduce well we won't get to verse 15 in a couple of weeks but in Colossians 1 he who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation our savior is the member of trinity that we can see <laughs> the visible member the word who became flesh we can't see the father we can't see the holy spirit but the word became flesh he who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation and then Really, the rest of this song, going down through verse 20, is, uh, is a celebration of Jesus Christ. Another example is 1 Timothy 3.16. Another he who psalm. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So there's two New Testament examples and then some uh, in Sirach, the uh, apocryphal text there. Uh, you've got more in chapter 46, 48, 49, 50. There's four of them in uh, that one apocryphal book. The uh, Kenosis hymn provides a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Really, it centers on Jesus who existed in the form of God and then became a, uh, took on the form of man, right? That he who was in the form of God took the form of fallen man. So it's a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. And that's always been 
the unanimous testimony of Orthodox Christianity. And it's been a mark of the cult to deny it. It's been a mark of uh, every other cult imaginable to deny either the deity or the humanity or even both, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, the Mormon definition of Jesus, the Mormon definition of, of God the Father, for example, not the biblical definition, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, other cults, uh, to deny the deity of Christ or that he was eternally God. Some will say he became God because uh, he was such a, a great human or that the Father became God because he was such a great human back in his day. All of those things are just evil. None of them are biblical. But this hymn that talks about the fact that before he was in a human body he was God in the form of God. The Word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this is a pretty easy way to spell it out. And if, you, if you're talking to somebody that needs to learn this doctrine, uh, I think John 1 is a great place to take them. I think Philippians 2 is a great place to take them. Show them the uh, preexistent glory of Jesus Christ. So, And He's the only human we can do this with. Right? Every other human uh, that uh, has been born, you can't talk about what they were doing before they were born. And they weren't doing anything before they were born. <laughs> they weren't doing anything before they were conceived. All right? Jesus is the only pre-existent soul that functioned, obviously, as God from all eternity past before He uh, entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary. All right, so He existed in the form of God. The more faith that the form of God. This is how He existed from all eternity past. He had all the omni-attributes. He was omniscient, omnipresent. Uh, he was uh, invisible even as the Father is invisible and the Holy Spirit is invisible. All the aspects of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's John 1, 1 and 2. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's just so uh, clear. He's called the Word. He's called the Logos. The Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, as soon as He was incarnate in the flesh, you could see Him. He gave birth, Mary gave birth to a son and they could see Him. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Verse 18 of John 1, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So when you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. John eight fifty eight. it's so easy to prove the, the pre-existence of Christ, part of the evidence for why He's God. Before Abraham, I am, right? John eight fifty eight. He's uh, going back and forth with these guys and he's nailing them on their unbelieving status when he talks about, I'm obeying my father, you're doing the things of your father. And quite clearly they got different fathers, Jesus and these Pharisees. And um, he says, you are of your father, the devil, in verse 44. And um, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's uh, verse 56. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Who do you think you are? 
And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. One of the most powerful statements he ever made of his own deity, of his own preexistent glory. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. <laughs> okay? Because this is blasphemy. This is absolute blasphemy unless it's true. Unless he's God, if he says he's God, it's blasphemy. But since he is God, he's true. And so they shouldn't be throwing stones at him. They should be falling at his feet and bowing and worshiping and, and begging for salvation and everything else. John 17, 5 in his prayer to the Father. You ever think about the good old days? Jesus says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Back when all there was was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, before the kenosis, before He emptied Himself, before He laid aside all that glory and came to be born of a virgin. And the Father goes, oh, just wait. You're going to get that glory back and so much more. Jesus gets His pre-incarnate glory back and then He gets a glory He's never had before. The Father bestows abundant glory upon Him because of His uh, humility in His earthly walk. Even in the Old Testament prophecy of the birth of Christ, we have this indication of His pre-existence. Micah 5.2. I think we can also see it in Isaiah now that it we come to that because a child is born to us, a son is given. That's two different things. But Micah 5.2 As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. What is this Ephrathah clan? Ephrathah was too small to be a clan. When Judah put all their clans together and organized themselves for war, Ephrathah wasn't uh, really on that list. It was too dinky. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler of Israel. All right, so somebody's going to be born in Bethlehem. We get that. But being born there is not the first part of the story. Because it says his going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Only God can have a going forth from eternity past. That not only is, is Christ going to be born in Bethlehem, but it's God himself. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. All right. He existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And really, Satan did. Satan said, I will be like the Most High God. Satan thought that equality with God was a thing to be grasped. Thought it was a thing you could hold on to. You could claim it for yourself and make it so. How arrogant, how insane. You know, anyone that's, that's able to voice such things, it's too late for them. <laughs> you know, by the time you decide uh, you want to be God, it's, it's too late because you're not God. You had a beginning. You had a birth, or in Satan's case, you had a day of creation. And the fact that Satan had a beginning is proof he's not God. The fact that you and I had beginnings is proof we're not God because God is without beginning. But if you decide having a beginning that you want to somehow retroactively undo that or, or make it not so or, or claim some kind of I am status, it's not possible. So yes, it's not a thing to be grasped. But that's how he tempted Eve. He goes, ooh, if you just eat that fruit, you know what's going to happen? If you eat that fruit, 
you'll be like God. <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, really tempted her real hard. And then she gave to her husband, he ate with her, and there we go. Equality with God. Satan vowed it in Isaiah 14. And Jesus said, no. Jesus is equal with God. I and the Father are one. But he says, you know what? I'm going to lay that aside. I'm not going to claim those privileges. I'm going to come and, and walk the walk of a servant. Wash the disciples' feet. A thing to be grasped. The idea of grasping, that's our rapture language. That's harpazo. That's the verb that talks about getting snatched. When the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive and remain, we're going to be harpazoed. God's going to grab us. And so we have the, uh, the expression there. Well, you can't grasp God or grasp Godhood and become God by a grabbing action. Jesus Christ emptied himself. The verb is kanao. The verb is kanao. Now you can, you can void something. I like the rendering of void, to make void. And even if you don't literally make it void, you can still consider that it's void. You can still consider that it's not important, even if it you know, intrinsically is. Jesus Christ is intrinsically glorious, but he can reckon himself as not glorious. And so uh, Romans 4.14 is a good example of this. 1 Corinthians 1.17. We got all these uses of kanao that we took the time to go through. But just real, realize that we're trying to grasp something that's kind of hard to, hard to wrap our minds around because it's, we're, we're talking about infinite glory and then self-limiting that, self-humbling himself in that, not accessing what he could access. And uh, that's, that's kind of, it is, it's the opposite of what our fallen nature would even dream about. So, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're just kind of geared, I think, part of the fall and part of this world system we live in. Uh, we're, we're geared towards dreaming about bigger and better things. And, uh, and, and here's Jesus who does just the opposite, who lays down the privileges and, uh, and humbles himself. Any conclusions regarding Jesus self-emptying cannot violate immutability or any attribute of deity. So we want to make there's some bad doctrine out there about the kenosis. Uh, Jesus did not stop being God. He didn't turn in his God card and then stop being God because that's not possible. Immutability means he doesn't change. That uh, to, to, to functionally stop being God is, is not possible. But to stop operating as God that is within his capacity to do. And I hope that's, uh, that's clear enough. But Romans 15, 3, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Hebrews 2. Let's look at some of these. I think this is, this is important. Romans 15. I was trying to limit our review to one class per segment, but it, I'm kind of thinking this one needs two segments, two classes. All right. The idea of humility. Um, 
Romans 15, 3. Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So that he emptied himself, that he accepted the reproaches, he accepted the humility. Uh, He didn't stop being God, but he stopped exercising the attributes of God. I'm wondering if that's the right verse. I will look that one up. Second Corinthians eight nine. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Again, it's an example of his kenosis, an example of how we're defining his kenosis. It's not going to violate immutability. It's not going to violate any attribute of deity. But it's the voluntary submission that he did to not exercise any privileges, to not demand any uh, any glories. So uh, for your sake, he became poor. We have that hymn, right? Ivory palaces out of the ivory palaces into this world below. It's it's a marvelous hymn that shows how he just laid that all aside. Or or, um, uh, when he came, he spent his first night on a bed of hay. How's that for royalty? So that's that's a good message there too. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. Therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Now, I believe he received his uh, human soul in that Proverbs 8 moment, the alpha moment of creation. So he's been the God-man ever since, but he hasn't had a body, not until the virgin birth. And uh, to identify with us fully required, he had to have a, a bodily experience. He had to be incarnate. Since children share in flesh and blood, he himself all, uh, likewise partook of the same. So he got a flesh and blood body. And uh, subject to death, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. This was a huge argument a while back when um, I made a statement that Adam was mortal even before he sinned, even before he, he fell into sin. That physical death is not a consequence of Adam's original sin. He's always mortal. Uh, and, and, and oh, the, the, the response was, was horrendous. Like, he couldn't die. He was, he, was, he was perfect. Well, Jesus was perfect and he still died. <laughs> you know, if you're telling me that, that Adam was, was somehow invincible or somehow uh, impervious to injury or impervious to physical death, why, why are you assuming that? Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. And, then, and he was scourged. He was beaten. He was, uh, his side was pierced. His hands and feet were pierced. He died physically. So mortality, physical death, is not a consequence of sin. It's only spiritual death that's the consequence of sin. We want to be clear on that. So he partook of flesh and blood. He undertook the death, the, the physical death, humiliation. Then he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. There's such a power to that. Satan holds that fear of death over the, the mortal's heads. They might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know. Playing with us like ants in a 
magnifying glass. You know, I mean, just Satan, uh, the, the angels are so majestic and so powerful, and we're just these puny dust creatures. You know, you're collecting grasshoppers, and I collected 365 grasshoppers one time and, and stored them in a jar. And, um, and they kept jumping out, which was a problem. Every time I took the lid off to try to put more in, the ones that were already in there were jumping out, and that was horrendous. So I ripped their legs off. You can't jump if you don't have legs. And then put the legless... Why am I telling this story? Because that's how angels... That's how angels look at us, right? We're just these mortal dust creatures. All right. I was six years old. I have since repented. (laughs) I've confessed. I'm in fellowship. It was kind of sadistic. It was just twisted. All right. But I remember 365 because it was the number of days in a year. All right. The power of death might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. And really the glory of God to choose the lesser rather than the greater, to choose the younger rather than the older. You know, the angels were here first, but how many times does he take the younger brother and say the older will serve the younger, right? That uh, Esau is going to serve Jacob or that uh, the, the first will be last. The angels were first. So guess what? They're going to be our servants for all eternity. The last will be first. And uh, different applications there. So Jesus emptied himself. All right. Then we have uh, more participles describing this. The aorist active verb for emptying is followed by these participles. Um, an aorist active, an aorist middle, an aorist passive. So we get a whole grammar class right here looking at these participles. But they celebrate how the Word became flesh. How did He empty Himself? Well, it says how He emptied Himself. And when we come back on Sunday, we'll come back to this. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. That being found, that's really the, the big deal there because He was on display. This was a visible testimony of God's work on our behalf. All right. If all three of these participles are equivalent statements, then all three phases, phrases celebrate how the Word became flesh. But if these three participles are not equivalent statements, then these communicate a progression of events. And that's uh, the conclusion I came to as a progression of events. And so I really want to spell that out on Sunday. And uh, self-humblings and God's exaltation. This is uh, what we all should be about. Every one of us should be humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. All right, well, that's about half. I think that's about half of what we did in uh, 13 classes. So we'll do the other half of this on Sunday, I think. I want to pick up here. Let's pick up here on Sunday. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together in your word. I ask, Father, that as we review what we've already learned, that you would just reinforce it and remind us, Father, of how powerful this is, how when we're weak, then we're strong, how when we are walking with you, Father, it's a a glory. 
And uh, a walk of humility is exactly what you're calling us to do. So open our eyes to these applications. Show us what you would have for us to do. When we, uh, when we fall short in the walk of humility, then Father, um, show us that attitude. Show us the, the wrong attitude that needs to be adjusted. You are able to humble those who walk in pride, and we thank you for it every single time. So uh, bless us in these studies. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.